talking and I was thinking back about how this is all like a treasure hunt. It's a detective, you know, and that's what makes it so interesting and satisfying and why I'm still kind of doing this kind of thing. It's it's absolute, absolutely like a treasure hunt. Ohio State University. I am in Columbus, Ohio, and it is Wednesday, April 28th, 2021. And I have the pleasure right now of speaking with Dr. Pamela Kinchelo, who is speaking with us from Rochester, New York. Dr. Kinchelo is a first wave scholar of Sarah Piat. Uh, and I'm delighted that we have a chance today to talk to her about her experience at that time when Sarah Piat had barely been heard of. And we had a group of first wave scholars out there collecting the materials and doing the pioneering thinking about Sarah's importance to American culture. Dr. Kinchelow got her master's degree in American literature at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And then she got her doctorate at Southern Illinois University, where she studied with Paula Bennett. She now teaches at the Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York. For the past 20 years, her scholarship and her teaching have ranged from topics in deaf literature and culture to cyborg theory to representations of deafness in film and visual media. When I was speaking with uh, Pam earlier, I was laughing with her about a sentence I read in her page about her work where she says, quote, in a former life, she engaged in the recovery of 19th century women's periodical poetry. So one of the situations we're talking with Dr. Kinchelow about today is that she started her career as a scholar working in that kind of recovery project that brought her into the first wave of Piat scholarship. And although she has moved in her scholarship to the other topics I was just talking about, she's also now returning to some work in 19th century periodicals, particularly on the topics of deafness and deaf cultures. So we have a lot to talk to Dr. Kinchelow about today. And our first question as always in these interviews is, uh, Pam, would you please tell us about when you first heard of Sarah Piat and how she then entered your life? Okay, sure. Um, like Elizabeth said, we were kind of laughing. I've been laughing all along because I feel like I am sifting back through the misty fog of time for these memories. But I remember vividly when I first heard about Piat because I was in a graduate seminar with Paula Bennett. I can't tell you the name of the class. I'm pretty sure it was, you know, one of those special topics classes in 19th century women poets, um, because I was um, concentrating in American literature. And I think, I think I only had two classes with Paula. I think it was that seminar and another uh, course I took with her, which was on um, slave narratives, slave and captivity narratives. But this was the one in 19th century women poets. And, um, as best as I can recall, you know, she had come up with it. She had made one of, back in the olden days, uh, teachers used to make their own packets. They would send them to Kinko's or whatever. And we have a little course packet and she had Xeroxed all of these poems. And we were going through the women, the, the, the poems. Um, we had a couple of weeks on Emily Dickinson and she took us through all the poets. But I remember toward the end of the course, well, maybe it wasn't toward the end of the course, but we were to choose a poet for our final research project. And um, I think she had some kind of a sign-up sheet where she had the poets listed and then maybe a little blurb about them. So we would kind of know what they wrote about. And I do remember just kind of looking them over and seeing that um, Piat wrote poems about children and mo uh, motherhood. And I think I gravitated toward that because I had just done my master's on um, Lucy Lane Clifford 
who wrote these really bizarre children's stories. She was British. Um, one of them was called The New Mother. I won't even go into it, but just really, I'm attracted to strange and kind of creepy things. And her, it's kind of like Rossetti, you know, just really weird stuff aimed at children. So I think that's why I kind of went, oh, oh, she wrote to kids. Uh, let's check this out. So um, that is how I met Piat and started reading some of her stuff in that course packet. Okay, and so you wrote a, uh, essentially a graduate seminar paper for Paula's class and that first took you into Sarah's work? Yeah, but geez, you know, I don't re even remember what the paper, I'm sure it had to do with her children's poetry. Okay. Um, but I, yeah, I can't remember much about the paper. So, you know, another part of your story I would love for us to be able to record in this series is, and, and I'll share this with you as someone who's been working in Piat studies, has always wanted to meet you and, and talk about your research. Um, and, you know, I have only the most general sense of some of the things you might have done. So please correct me wherever I'm wrong. But I, I had the sense that um, on the way to writing your dissertation and maybe as part of writing your dissertation, and let me just mention for our audience that you, um, you did a dissertation completed in 1997, right, right, Pam? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, the dissertation is about a, uh, a concept, a, a term you coin in the dissertation, monumental discourse. And the dissertation was about issues of um, travel and exile and tourism as they influenced and shaped the work of a number of 19th century American writers. Uh, and the, the writer really at the center of your dissertation, if I recall correctly, is Sarah with two full chapters on Sarah and her years in Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, and so you talk about, you know, first encountering Sarah in a class with Paula Bennett, and eventually you wrote this dissertation in 1997, which I want to again stress for our audience, this is one of the earliest works of scholarship on uh, Sarah um, after the time of her death in, in 1919. So um, that dissertation is out there for people to acquire probably through their libraries and to read. And um, eventually Pam and I today will talk about her work on Ireland. But for now, Pam, I'd love to hear the stories. I have the sense, is it correct that you actually worked as Paula's research assistant at some point? That is true. Um, and I can't remember when this came about that she did call me to her office one day and made me this um, offer. You know, uh, yes, she offered me the chance to be her research assistant and told me what that entailed. And I said, sure, it would give me some money during the summer. And uh, that's how I got started on that road. And um, it's in the course of doing the research that I got, of course, kind of hooked on Piat, kind of fascinated with her, the details of her life. Okay. Um, do you by any chance in terms of the timeline with the dissertation coming out in 1997, do you by any chance recall, was it one summer that you were a research assistant for her or was it for a longer period of time or? It must have been for a longer period of time. Uh, let me see. So I I went and got that research grant to go and live in Ireland um, to do ostensibly to do research for my dissertation. But Paula was right there saying, okay, go here, go there. I want you to look at this. <laughs> I wasn't technically her research assistant at that point, but I still was. So okay. I, I want to say, yeah, a year or two at least before then. So. Okay. All right, 95, great. 96, yeah. All right, so around then. All right, so around 95, 96, this is maybe helpful also to our audience. Um, one of the things that I have been doing in the course of these interviews is um, maintaining an awareness that some of our audience is listening to maybe only one or two interviews. Some people are listening to all of them. And so I kind of signpost in individual interviews where various events uh, stand in the timeline of Piat's recovery. So I mentioned Pam's dissertation was in 1997 and she just mentioned doing research in Ireland uh, around the time of 95 or 96. Did I get that right, Pam? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the thing I wanna mention here, um, some of you will know this from other interviews is that the really formative 
uh, Penguin Edition of 19th Century American Poets, edited by William Spengemann and Jessica Forbes Roberts, came out in 1996. And our audience has heard me mention that before, because this was an extremely important publication for Piat's recovery. And it, it, it was the uh, first publication that um, introduced a cluster of poems by Piat and made the claim for her that others would go on to make that she was, um, and the, the kind of language being used at this time is, the great undiscovered poet, poet of the American 19th century. The, the Spangemann Roberts Penguin edition does that, made that kind of big claim. So just for positioning, you can hear that, that Pam was out there doing her work right at this same time when you have all this energy of reclamation about Sarah. Um, okay, so yeah, thanks a lot for the, uh, the, the, the signposting on the time when things are happening, Pam. Mm -hmm. So now can you take us back into like, what were some of the things you actually did as, as Paula's research assistant? Where, where, what places did you go? What stuff were you looking at? What were your tasks? I want to start out by saying, um, you know, and just in case there are graduate students listening in on this, which there may be, uh, the thing that I, one of the great regrets of my life, I think, is that I didn't realize what a fabulous opportunity I had in front of me. I was just like, okay, I'm going to do this. And you know, when you're a graduate, starving graduate student, you're, you're struggling to do your own work. And then you just kind of, you're making money and you don't really realize when you're in the middle of an apprenticeship <laughs> that was incredibly valuable. And I think Paula tried to impress that upon me, but I didn't really realize what I was experiencing at the time. So it's been a real pleasure to kind of go back and go, oh my God, how lucky were you that you got to do this? Mm -hmm. um, because, and I say that because Dr. Bennett pretty much took me to most of the premier research libraries and archives in the country. Um, and a lot of this she funded, I think, by herself. But she dragged me, dragged me along to, uh, and I wrote down, like, and I don't know in what order, but we went to the Newberry in Chicago. We went to the Beinecke at Yale. We went to the New York Public Library. We went to Columbia. Um, we went to the Boston Public. Uh, and I made a note. I said, I wasn't much used to her on that trip because I managed to get so sick that I started hallucinating. I had such a high fever. I swear to God, I was hallucinating in the main reading room. <laughs> we were in there all day and oh my God. snowing like heck outside. I remember that. And I just got a cold or something. I don't know, but there was this bust, I think of Mark Twain or somebody that was behind me. And I was convinced that it was a person like moving around. I, it was crazy. So the next day she, you know, she lived, uh, she had a house in Concord and uh, she just left me at home and I slept all day. <laughs> so that was useless. But I remember going, I mean, I have vivid memories of all of these archives. We went to the, the other fabulous memory. Um, one of the treasured memories of my life is uh, she got me into Widener and we both went in to Widener, went into the stacks, crawled around in there. And then she took me to Emily Dickinson room. She got me in there. I got to see the furniture, the coral, you know, the books. <laughs> she took me into uh, the reading room there and they had them bring out some of the, the poems, you know, I saw the poems with one of the premier uh, scholars of Emily Dickinson. You know, I, I think that I did realize at the time how cool that was, but just traveling all around and I learned the culture, I guess, it, you know, it is kind of a culture, the, the special collections, the archives, you know, learning the rules and the etiquette. And back then, I don't think they do it anymore. You know, you had to wear the gloves and they bring it out and turn the pages on the little velvet stands. I don't think, I don't think they do gloves anymore. Didn't they decide that that was more damaging? To yeah, most, yeah, mostly now when I go, they, they don't ask for the gloves, but yeah. the other protocols yeah. you're mentioning, of course, those are all still there. You know, um, hang, hang your stuff out in the locker outside, yeah, yeah. bring yeah. in your little stubby pencil and um, just sitting in those gigantic reading rooms and 
filling out the slips. Okay, I'm ready for this next. And they bring the little cart of stuff out and then you're just going. And I literally, that was my job was to literally take these old, ancient, musty, yellowing, crumbling newspapers and turn them page by page because I was involved in that. Uh, remember, uh, Dr. B mentions in her interview where she decided she had to go back and look at all of, look for Sarah's juvenilia. <laughs> well, I was going back through all of those newspapers and looking for SMB and uh, trying to find those, you know, early poems. Okay, so um, you were listing for us some of the amazing repositories you went to. Were, were, you, were you with um, Paula Bennett or even on your own by any chance at the Louisville Public Library? I remember going to, uh, I don't think I was at the Louisville Public Library. I remember going to um, a historical society. In Kentucky? In Kentucky. Okay. And looking for, cause I, I was, uh, that was on my own. I was going to, uh, for some reason, and she was like, go and look for the stuff. And okay. I'm not even, I'm not even remembering what it was I found, but no, I don't think I was at Louisville Public Library. Okay. One of the reasons I asked about that, I'm curious just if you have any memories about this is um, you just used the term juvenilia. And so let me just um, remind our audience or um, share with people who are unfamiliar with the term that this term gets used in literary studies to talk about usually the earliest work of an author, um, the work that they produced when they were young. And sometimes, sometimes the term has a derogatory connotation. That is, this is stuff that they wrote when they were still artistically immature, basically that kind of a concept. And um, Pam, I don't know if you and I have had a chance to talk about this, but let me share the story with the audience that when uh, Paula published her edition of Piat, the edition called Palace Burner, which came out in 2001, um, her introduction to that volume and her selections of the poems um, pretty much sidelined and otherwise ignored uh, the many, many poems that Sarah wrote before she became Mrs. Piat, when she was still um, a young unmarried poet in Kentucky who published under the name Sally Bryan, B-R-Y-A-N. And Pam just mentioned she often published under her initials, S-M-B. And at, at, uh, Paula herself has said since, including in her interview for this series, that she later realized um, this was what she considers to have been her biggest mistake in her role in the Piat recovery, which was dismissing the so-called juvenilia as um, of minimal importance. Paula later came to believe that those poems were absolutely major poems. Um, so that's just some background on this part of the discussion with Pam about the juvenilia and hunting for the juvenilia. Now, <laughs> Pam had the incredible formative role of being out there looking for that stuff. Um, and so, Pam, that's why I asked about Louisville, just uh, to mention to our audience that the two main publication venues for Sarah's um, poems when she was unmarried, she begins publishing as a immediately uh, a poet who achieves national celebrity when she's still a teenager. And the two main publications we're aware of are the New York Ledger and the Louisville Daily Journal. Mm -hmm. So um, also just for our audience, um, the Sarah Morgan Bryan Piat Recovery Project uh, hosted by the Ohio State University's um, Rare Books and Manuscripts Library um, has uh, created a website of all the known poems of Sally M. Bryan's in the New York Ledger. So, Pam, I'm wondering, this maybe this was some of the work you did at the uh, New York Public Library, perhaps? Do you know if you were working on the Ledger poems? I'm pretty sure. I mean, okay. it's a blur because, yeah. It, but yes, I'm fairly certain that we were looking for those Okay. I know we were looking for the early poems. Okay, so the other thing I'll just mention for the audience is that um, those Louisville Daily Journal poems right now, the current state of scholarship, the only reason that any of us has access to those poems is because in the Paula Bennett papers in special collections at the Ohio State University, someone 
this question might come to you, Pam. Someone, including Paula Bennett, Pam, I don't know if you were there or not, someone looked at those poems in Louisville at the Free Public Library and made transcriptions of them from the microfilm. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because no one else has that microfilm and no one has print copies of that newspaper. It has vanished. Unless it's in somebody's attic somewhere, no library has it. And no one has the microfilm except for the Free Public Library in Louisville. So, and they don't lend it. So to actually see those poems on microfilm, you have to go to Louisville. This is how scarce these poems are and how important it was that someone wrote them down. So Pam, those are in Paula Bennett's papers. And you know, one of the things I'm always thinking about when I work through Paula's papers is, I know that you were out there doing a lot of these projects with her. Um, and it's one of the reasons I was excited today to hear your memories about, you know, um, it, it, for example, you, you listing all the libraries that you went to and you were there on the ground with her doing that recovery work. You know, uh... Maybe I was in that place because I definitely did do the types, the, the typed transcripts. Uh -huh. and, uh, so I was typing these up. So that may have been me. That may um, have been you. All right. I was trying to, and I was laughing because I was remembering we had to do a lot of that. I had to do a lot of that. Um, and I, I can't remember when she did this, but at one point, Dr. B bought this amazing little gadget, which was a handheld, basically a Xerox machine, little copier. Hmm. They probably don't even make them anymore, but you could, and it was about, it could scan about this, just about a newspaper columns worth of, you know, oh. width of a column. And what you did was you took the little device. Uh -huh. I, yeah, I don't know where she got it, but we were just like, oh, this is the best, because then when we saw the old papers, we could just kind of make these, she was, you know, you could scan it, and then you'd have this little grocery receipt slip of paper, and uh -huh. uh, we took all of those and pasted them onto, huh. you know, regular paper, and then I typed those up. I remember typing oh, those up. Oh, hey, that is great information. <laughs> that is the kind of thing that if if I saw those strips of paper somewhere, I would have no idea what they were. Yeah, that's what it was. I can't wow. tell you the name of the device, but it was like the bee's knees because before that, yes, we had been just kind of transcribing by hand or I honestly have no memory of the microfilm, but uh -huh. she may have done that. She may have done that. Okay. Well, hey, that's a, that's a great story because sometimes it is true, as you know, as someone who also has worked in a lot of archives, you encounter some sort of object and it's just uninterpretable at some level. You're like, what is this thing? Like, how, <laughs> how, how on earth did it end up looking like this? Um, right. And it, it's part of the, it's part of the detective quest. And right now. But, yeah. I'm glad I could clear that up for you. Cause yeah, when yeah. you see those pages of Xerox pages and there's like the little strips of paper, that's what, it, yeah, that's what well, it was. I mean, I'm even trying to visualize that cam. So basically it was serving sort of the function that today might be, well, I'll just take a picture with my phone. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay. But, but you had, you got, you could print it out. You could get a paper record somehow, or did you print it? Did you then type them up from a screen of this device? It was this little, so I would have the newspaper like this, yeah. a little black machine, uh -huh. and it had a, a, seriously, I think it was basically like cashier's, you know, tape, yeah. it, and you turn it on and go, okay. like that, and then the strip of cut, wow. copied it, and it was this little strip. Wow, and it would come out of the machine then, the strip of paper? Yeah, it would come out of the wow. machine. This is so we would gather We would gather those and tape them onto a, uh, you know, eight by 11 piece of paper. And then I type them up and we have them on those things we used to call floppy disks. Yes, I, we have some of the floppy disks actually in our collection. But thank you so much for that story. I mean, I am sure someday that that is going to answer some really bizarre question I have about stuff that's in those folders somewhere. <laughs> okay, good. Um, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So yeah, the Louisville Daily Journal is, is very important and very hard to get one's hands on. Um, and another story I'll share before we hear more of your archival stories is that uh, three years ago this summer, I went and worked in the collections at Yale. So I was in the Beinecke 
and I was in Sterling Library working in the Piat family papers. And one of the things that was so delightful about um, the collections in Sterling, the Piat family papers, is that every time I went to a box, um, I would notice there were still some flags in, in the box from a prior user. And just for our audience, I'll, I'll add that there are 3,000 pieces of paper in the uh, Piat family papers. I know because I took a picture of every single one of them. And most of those pieces of paper are not by or about Sarah Pia. They're about her husband's family. So it's a very, very valuable collection. But the reason I mentioned the flags, and for people who don't know this, it's a, it's a piece of colored paper you use when you're in archives to mark something in the files that um, you are going to ask the library staff to make a photocopy of for you. You need permission to do those things. It's still the case that not all archives let you take pictures. Some do and some don't. Um, but uh, Sterling Library does let you make photographs now. This is one way I knew that the flags were old. Mm -hmm. The flags predated when you could make, you know, take your own pictures. But every time I looked at a flag, the flags were all for items by or about Sarah Piat. So I knew they were yours and Paula's. How funny. So, yeah, so I felt like I was, <laughs> I was just stepping back in time. The last time someone had used that collection was you guys. Yep. And, and, and I, I remember felt, that library. It's beautiful, beautiful library. Right? Yeah. But yeah. I, I felt like I stepped right back into your footsteps and in a sense stood on your shoulders. Um, so that was really, that was really fun for me. And that's such a great collection. <laughs> um, so, you know, you mentioned all these libraries you you went to. We'd love to hear any any memories or stories you have about um, what it was like working in these materials and hunting for them. Um, you mentioned your surreal sort of gothic experience with having hallucinations <laughs> in one of the libraries. Um, is there is there anything else about that work that um, that comes to mind now or that you think of as surprising or especially interesting? Uh, just that it's funny uh, coming full circle, but uh, remembering how one used to have to do these things uh, as compared to how one does them now. But yeah, um, yeah. Right I know that for sure that I'm really allergic to dust mites. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I used to get incredibly, I, and I don't know if that caused it, that wasn't causing the hallucinations, but every other time that we went in there, I would just definitely allergic to the dust mites but just that smell of the you know that we all scholars still love the smell of the old libraries the smell of the paper in the stacks um it it does make me sad though because you know what was this 30 years ago how um these artifacts were deteriorating even then so it doesn't surprise me that we have some papers that are only on microfilm you know they're gone um I, one of my favorite memories is to actually going to the Piat Castles with uh, Dr. Bennett. And we, I may have gone there a couple of times with her. I remember going with a fellow graduate student. His name is Joe Fulton. He actually ended up being quite a Mark Twain scholar. He's published a couple of books. Um, and I don't remember where he ended up teaching. But Joe, I remember Dr. Bennett taking us out to dinner and I had my first ostrich burger. So oh. I have a vivid memory of that, but uh, the Piat castles, I love old homes and, you know, old creepy mansions. And this was definitely, I guess there were two, wasn't there? There's Castle yeah. Maxi and then the other one. Yeah. We did most of our research in the one place and I met Larry Michaels because I have a signed edition of his book, which I got there. And that was another, I, I do remember using that little device on the Capitol because okay, we were going, yeah. going through page after page of the Capitol. Okay. Yes, can you tell, for, yeah, tell us about the Capitol. Were you using it in the attic or what part of the, the do you remember the space? I was not in the attic. So <laughs> she must have been, because she, Paula wasn't with me. So she must have been up in the attic. I remember being kind of in the, on the main, somewhere on the ground floor at, and I always think of Bartleby the Scrivener because I think I was on some kind of, you know, slanted desk. And the Capitol, if I'm remembering correctly, was one of those really huge papers, you know, and there was no one watching me. So this wasn't, there was no archival special air or anything. We were just 
dragging these big old volumes out and I was turning pages and you know all the spores were flying everywhere but I was not in the attic I was downstairs but I do have one of my uh one of the only supernatural experiences I've ever had in my life I did have in the going to the attic <laughs> really <laughs> yeah I just had I was just overcome by this extremely creepy I, I just wanted to get out of there just oh. it was like you know they show on their shows like you just get this overwhelming sensation the hairs on the back of your neck go up I just remember being really, really severely creeped out. <laughs> wow, that's intense. I know. Um, uh, you know, we, there is an interview in this series with uh, Margaret Piat. It's not posted yet, but it will be soon. And um, I don't know if you know this, Pam, but when you went there, there were um, two castles, um, Makachee and Mako Cheek. Yeah. And um, Mako Cheek, which is the castle that has Sarah's portrait painted on the ceiling of the library um was sold last fall huh so um margaret piat and um the the archives and the museum and the public tours and so on are now in the the one piat castle um where the attic uh is the archives huh. and the attic that you're talking about so um so, you know, that that's really interesting about um, your stories about working in the Capitol. And it leads me to another question. Earlier, you mentioned the initials, SMB. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing that's that's hard for often my my undergraduates, for example, who are <clears throat> unfamiliar with archival projects, and I try to educate them about those. And I, I always say to them, you have to remember that no poet is born great. No author is born great at some point they their culture or a later culture defines them as great and then you have this phenomenon where people go hunting for their material what did they write exactly nobody knows necessarily everything they wrote right the and so this is one reason why these these the, the these stories like your story are, are so important to the story of sarah's recovery but so i try to get them in touch with the fact that look at this time and i'd love to hear your thoughts about this pam at this time, one of the big projects all the first wave scholars, including yourself, had was just to find Sarah's stuff. Like, what exactly did she write? No one has done a complete bibliography at this stage of a recovery. So for you to say something like, well, first of all, we were just reading the Capitol looking for her poems, but also let's let's this is another turn of the screw. At some point, you and Paula must have realized she didn't always sign her poems. They didn't always say Sally Bryan. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned, okay, some of the poems are published with the initials SMB. So can you talk to us a little bit about your experience? Like, how did you figure out what names to look for? um you know how did you think about things like initials or maybe anonymous poems or like how did you find the stuff in other words well as as you were just talking i was thinking back about how this is all like a treasure hunt it's a detective you know and that's what makes it so interesting and satisfying and why i'm still kind of doing this kind of thing it's it's absolute absolutely like a treasure hunt so we started out knowing that she had these books that john jay you know, had published. And most of them, I think most of them actually when she was in Ireland, so later on in her career. Um, and Dr. Bennett talks about how she came across her in the periodicals and realized, oh my God, she's publishing all this stuff pretty much in advance of the books. Um, I don't remember the aha moment where we were thinking, oh geez, we got to start looking for SMB or Sally you know, that just, again, you're, you're looking at uh, Don Piat, you're looking at the family tree, you're looking at where they lived. We found out, you know, he was publishing the Capitol, he was in Washington. So you look at publications in coming out of DC, you just kind of follow all of these different trails, you know, who, the, who she married, who, where they lived, and then you check out the places where they lived and I don't know if I'm making any sense. With yeah, that. no, that makes a lot of sense. And, and very, very helpful to hear you talk about this as the treasure hunt and you have to follow the trails. Yeah. Um, and, it's all, and you find all of these crazy interconnections. And this is something that I wrote down when I was writing notes 
about how it was to do this kind of research compared to how it is now, and I talked to my students today about this, is that there's a lot of serendipity involved, um, which doesn't happen as much anymore because, like I said, you're crawling around in the stacks and you're just looking at all these books and journals or, or leafing through them. Fits, you know, hands on the paper, physically in the room with the thing. And uh, sometimes that's the only way you find other things, other related things, you know, when you're doing research. You find the book on the shelf that you came to the library for, but then you look around on the shelf and you see like five other books. Oh, geez, I got to check those out. The, that's, that's the kind of serendipity that doesn't really happen anymore. Or you're in the box, right, of the stuff in the archive and you kind of sifting through and maybe it doesn't, it isn't flagged, but you're looking through all of the materials anyway. And you, maybe you're making connections that someone else didn't make. Uh, it's just different. It's just the, the hands-on experience, just even, you know, shopping for books. I mean, going to an actual bookstore compared to Amazon. That's what we're, that's what we're talking about with it. I love the digitization. I do. I'm not complaining, but there is something missing. There's an element missing. Yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. That, I, and I think it's that kind of serendipity that led us to figure these, you know, connect the dots and go, oh, wait a minute. Oh, she's Sally. I think sometimes, didn't she just have Sally? Um, without a last name, you mean? Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember. Um, I, you know, maybe, I don't think I've seen a poem that just says Sally, but that doesn't mean they're not there. And right. it's great that you raised that because you have to say even, you know, what about poems that are not signed? Well, okay, yeah. So you, I remember um, just kind of keeping an eye out and after you've seen, after you've read a lot of her poems and, and the poems of other people, you do kind of get a sense of her voice and her, um, her motifs. Mm -hmm. So there would be poems that were not signed that I would go, um, you know, Dr. Bennett, what do you think of this one? So I would make note of them and have her look at them. I don't know how many she accepted into the canon, but I do remember doing that. Just kind of having, and after spending that many hours looking at the stuff, I feel like I did eventually get kind of, a, and I know she had a highly developed sense for figuring out what, and, and also what's good and what wasn't as good and what was worthy of further scrutiny, you know, that kind of thing, but. That's also a great point that um, I find it's it's helpful in, in teaching undergraduates to really go deeper in, into explaining this to them. And the way you told that story is a great example. That is that there, there are things you learn through experience, through repetition and exposure and experience and careful reading. And one of the things, um, Pam, that you were just conveying is very important, that is, that you do have this phenomenon, as we both know, in the newspapers and magazines, where there are a lot of poems that are published without an attribution or just with initials. So again, going back to this pioneering work that you did to say at a certain point, we realized that poems of hers were being published without her name on them. Now, undergraduates, you know, and it makes perfect sense, will say, well, like, how did you know? Mm -hmm. And the answer for them is you couldn't possibly know because you don't have the experience yet. But when you talk about someone like Pam Kinchelow or Paula Bennett, by this point, they have spent so much intensive time reading Sarah's poems that they recognize what we call her voice. She has certain characteristics and habits that you don't see in other poets. And, and you can only make that kind of judgment if you're a scholar and you have a lot of experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, Paula does tell a story somewhere of um, of uh, you turning to her and saying, uh, I might get this story slightly wrong, but something like, Dr. Bennett, I think I just found a poem by her that doesn't have her name on it. And, you know, this is a, like a great scholarly archive story. And then just, and Paula just said, and then I just realized we had to start all over again and go back through every issue looking for poems without her name on them. Does that, does that sound familiar at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, just sitting here thinking back uh, about serendipitous events like that. Um, the other thing that, and I don't know if we have as much of this going on today. The other thing that was really important to, I mean, 
we were really, at least I was, I really, really got into therapy. I mean, it's an obsession. And I think you have to become obsessed. I know Dr. B was obsessed, maybe to an unhealthy degree, <laughs> but you do, you become completely immersed and obsessed. And another really key component, at least for me, and this goes toward my dissertation work, is actually being in the places that she was in. Yeah. So being in Castle Makachik and I don't know, there's just something about that inhabiting the space, seeing her face on the ceiling. You know, these are all other kinds of texts that kind of feed into that experience. And also I think allows you to maybe recognize her, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you're that and um, embedded in it. I have a question for you real quick. Sure. Yeah. Did you, cause this is like the Holy grail. It's still my, and I think I mentioned it in my last email to Dr. B is like, I, I think I remember at some point, cause I was transcribing letters too. We were finding all the letters and I remember typing them up and I still have a folder of some of them somewhere, but I remember reading somewhere. We both picked up on this. There were a couple of trunks, I believe that were coming back from Ireland. They had all their journals. She and JJ kept extensive journals from what we can tell and that the trunks were lost or that they went up in the fire that burned their house in Cincinnati. So that's just always haunted me. Like, I know there's more stuff out there. I always wanted to write her biography. I wanted to write up a biography of her life in Ireland because I had gone to the Priory. I'd been to these places. I'd been to Clonmel Parish Churchyard and seen the bones in the crypts, you know? <laughs> like I could really write this up and make it interesting, but never felt like I could because I didn't have that. I just felt like I needed her diaries and it just haunts me that maybe they're out there somewhere. Or, you know what I mean? But yeah. have you ever come across any clues or anything like that? Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, about I absolutely do. And, and, you know, we're connecting at the level of this obsession now, which is a whole other story. <laughs> um, you know, I think I shared with you that I'm now working on uh, writing a biography. And um, so there are a lot of stories to tell, but as you say, there are a couple of things that are very tantalizing. One is, first of all, I agree, you are absolutely right. There is definitely still stuff out there that has not been found. And what I usually say to my students about this is you have to realize that still most people have not heard of Sarah Pia. Um, on my recent visit three years ago to, to the Yale archives, um, one of the things I was doing, and I know that you and Paula did it before me, was um, stressing to them that she had become important and should be more prominent in their finding aid. Um, that has happened. Uh, just recently, which I'm delighted to see. When you check the finding aid now, she is prominently listed as uh, an important keyword in the collection. Yeah, which is great, <laughs> right? But um, so first of all, the idea that there is still stuff out there, it's probably in people's attics. They probably have um, materials that they have no idea or of any current literary value. So we have to keep looking. But also, as you say, there are these stories about very important journals that were lost. Um, and so, you know, there's always a question, Pam, as you and I both know in archives, there's a question like, could they possibly turn up? Obviously not if they were destroyed in the fire, but if they were stolen, they could be somewhere. I know, and, and I remember reading at some point, uh, at least in their house in Ireland, JJ collected autographs, and I think they had them on the walls or something. He was an autograph collector, and I always wonder, well, what happened to that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so this might be a great, um, a great time to ask you um, if you would tell us more about your six months in Ireland. I, I went to Ireland myself a few years ago, and um, I didn't get to spend as much time there as you did. I hope to go back, and I completely feel the vibe you are expressing when you say when you go to the places, and you read those poems that are rooted somehow in those places you see them in a whole new way right i mean don't you just learn things um oh god i mean um i it was an exchange program so i was in galway in okay. affiliated with U ucg galway so had to make it was just so horrible had to go on the train to dublin <laughs> had to go to trinity and 
But um, again, like I said in the very beginning, I, uh, I underestimated what I learned from, from Dr. Bennett and, and what I did, you know, I was able to go by myself to this other country and take myself to these, you know, the, the National Library there in Dublin. And I knew exactly what to do because I had been doing it. I think back, I'm like, that's pretty damn cool. It sure is. I, you know, yeah. I'm this graduate student, but I went right in there and knew exactly what to do. I knew what I was looking for. Um, Dr. B always told me I wasn't very professional, but, and I probably wasn't at that point, but I was learning. <laughs> but how cool is that? And then making the trip again on the bus or the train down to Cove and standing on the pier at Queenstown. Yeah. And, and then going to her house and seriously, and just walking up the country road. Now I'm still mad that I didn't go to the door and get into the priory. I just kind of wandered and skulked around the property, but it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And you can see, you know, the river and all of these things that she writes about. And it just, when you go back to the poetry, that whole, it just gives you another level. Um, and this is also something that I've discovered since talking to you, like, hey, you know, I should read Giving Back the Flower again. I haven't, I haven't looked at that poem in a long time. Oh my God, since being a mother, it's a, a completely different poem for me. Yeah, I agree. All I of her poems. Agree. Yeah, the, the motherhood poems, they hit very hard, don't they? With, with, with age and wisdom, man, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and did you by any chance, did you have a chance to go see Lewis's grave? No, I found Pia, uh, her grave, Sarah's grave. I don't, where's Lewis? In, in Ireland. Oh yeah. yeah, I didn't, is it in the, is it in that, um, is it in Clonmel? It is. Okay. It is. It yeah, is. I don't think it I found is. it. I remember wandering yeah. around over there, but. Yeah, it's it's hard to find it. There was, there's, there was no available list, you know, the day I was there helping you locate the grave. So finding it just meant walking around for hours reading gravestones. Oh God. Um, but what it's did, another one of those things that hit, you know, just really hits hard to see. What that did it look point. like? Is it is it just a little stone or? Well, um, you know, offline, uh, uh, Pam, I'll send you a picture. Of it. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it is very, very, the stone is very, very degraded. It's, it's huh. worn away. So you also have to work hard to read it. Um, but it's a, it's a small rectangular stone right off one of the walking paths. I think um, I found Charles Wolfe. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So Clonmel, right. Now, um, did I understand correctly, you you were for the six months you lived in Galway. So your trips to the Piats, the, 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 the immediate area where they lived involved commuting. Yeah, and that's kind of a bummer. Because again, I'm a poor grad student. So I couldn't really afford to go traipsing around. I, you know, I went to Dublin several times. Mm -hmm. But I only got down to Cove and cork one time mm -hmm. so i was kind of limited in that way i would have and if i had had the time and the money i would have gone back and done some more work in dublin because i did find out where her son don jr had lived in clontarf ah. and I was sure that there were things papers there had to be something there but i never okay got to them did now did that material make it into your dissertation or notes like about what you discovered about Don Jr? I don't think so, you know, because I was uh, so focused on her and I also would have traveled to more of the monuments that she visited. Like I never went to the hill of, you know, Tara or any of those things. Okay. okay. That would have I think enhanced my study of the poems, but Yeah. So, you know, because I because, you know, I'm an archive rat like you, Pam. The next question is one I have to ask, which is, did you save all your notes from the trip? Uh, no, have I have a diary. Time? I have a diary, a journal okay. that I, all right. I, didn't have, I don't have the notes that I took in the, in the library though. Okay. And you know what? I was so into this. I'm such a geek, but this is where I can express my geekdom uh, without judgment. Uh, I got really good at translating Gaelic. Oh. And Gaelic dictionaries and I got to the point where I swear I could actually kind of make out what was being said because I was looking in some of the papers at the National Library looking for Piat see if she published anything there hmm. and um who was it was it one of her sons that ended up kind of being either a translator or he wrote in Gaelic 
Yeah, I think that I think that was gone. Yeah, I remember going off on kind of a, a, a separate rabbit hole looking at his stuff. I don't think I came up with anything, but interesting, you know, and that's what you do. You just kind of go off in these other strange directions. Yeah, that's um, that's really interesting. I, I then my next question was going to be if you can tell us about um, you you were saying you you didn't have that much as a, as a graduate student. You didn't have that money for that much money for traveling around Ireland. Was most of your uh, labor when you were there centered in libraries? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I spent a lot of time in. I went. Yeah, I would go to the library in Galway, and I got some you know stuff on loan. And yeah, can you tell yeah. us about what? You know, what was your vision at that time of what you were looking for? Were you looking for the Piats to turn up in the local news? Were you looking at consular records? Like, what was it you were mostly focused on when you were in Ireland for six months? So when I look back and I, I you know, thank God Paula went and did this because it, I didn't even think to go to the consulate and think and and because I wasn't actually, to be honest, that interested in JJ, but I guess I could, John James, I guess I should have been, but I was so focused on, you know, the monuments and the places that I went. And, and then, like I said, I went off in this rabbit hole looking for the, the, the son and what happened to them because they stayed behind when, when the parents came back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't go to the consulate. And there were a, probably a lot of other places I could have delved into when I was there and I didn't, but again, yeah, yeah. dumb young grad student, I didn't well, know. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I hope to be able to get back. And another thing, um, it sounds like you didn't make it to Scotland. No, um, wanted to do that. Yeah, because the son I'll mention for our audience, another one of the sons who stayed behind, they essentially became Irish. Yeah, the, the sons who stayed behind and, and Frederick became uh, an American consul in um, Edinburgh and he died there. So, I mean, this goes back to our discussion about the treasure hunt, Pam, right? Exactly. There may yeah. be things there. Yes. And what you've said about Gaelic, you know, yeah. there are materials in Gaelic. There, there, there are the Irish uh, descendants. You know, there's there's so much still to be done. It's one of the things that makes this area of scholarship so vibrant, and there are so many opportunities for um, doing really valuable work. Um, and I agree with you. Like, I'm so glad that there are all these digital sites, you know, giving us access to newspapers and so on. But finding that stuff in paper is a completely different experience. And I agree with you. There's stuff you can see there that you just cannot see looking at stuff that's digitized. Um, so, you know, I, I um, am so grateful for all the work that you did. And I know that um, there are so many traces of your first wave work in all the collections that I'm now going to as a second wave scholar, you know, all those, all those tracks that you and, uh, you and Paula walked uh, before me and just really opened the doors. And we're all very grateful to you for that. That's so cool. I love that image, you know, that, that Paula and I are kind of chasing after Piat and traces of her. And then here you are kind of chasing <laughs> further down the line and then oh, so yeah. on and so on, right? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things she said to me um, when I really started focusing my scholarship on, um, on recovering Sarah, I, I, there, I had several conversations with Paula where I would say to her, like I'd finish up one thing and I'd say to her, what in your view, what is the most important thing to do next? And at one point she said to me, get the capital. <laughs> um, and that's when the Ohio State um, project began of digitizing the capital. So thank goodness that is now digitized. Um, She's right. Cause that thing, like I said, was literally crumbling into dust so yeah okay, yes thank yeah. you for reminding our audience of that that that's one of the things about newspapers they they don't last that long um so so it's great that that was done um but there was another point where she said to me um someone needs to redo everything i already did <laughs> she did <laughs> what does she mean by that well i think what she just means is that when she talks about it she says you have to realize i had very limited time there, there was just a, and so I'd like to hear your thoughts about this Pam maybe as we start um, wrapping up our, our hour together is she just said you know the the time urgency of finding lots of things first of all finding them as we've said second of all traveling 
and looking at them. Like that's just, a, that's like several lifetimes worth of scholarship to do as, you know, just a couple of people. And so she just said, you know, every, someone needs to go back and redo every, each of those stages kind of in, you know, with more time and going into deeper detail. Um, and, you know, in a way, I think this is, this is partly what we see with the recovery of other major authors like Melvin, like people have to blaze the trail and then everyone has to go back and do everything kind of with more time and more um, scope and dive yeah. deeper into each thing. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that based on your experience in the first wave treasure hunt? You know, I couldn't agree more, actually, because I, I was just kind of flashing on um, some stuff I did on my own and just driving. I have this memory of driving. I don't know where I was going. Maybe I was going to Louisville. I don't know. But I went through Versailles. Um, no, not Versailles. I was over in over in Kentucky, actually <laughs> over, over in Kentucky, and wow. I found the place where she went. What was the name of the seminary she went to? Henry Female College. Yeah, the Henry. Yes, I found the site. I think I saw the building. I saw the plaque for sure. Didn't stop, you know, didn't make any inquiries. There's probably a little local library in that town, you know, uh, just going back. And I always wanted to look more into the Daniel Boone connections. There's all kinds of interesting things over in Kentucky yeah. that hasn't been worked on or looked at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that the thing that sticks with me about Piat that continues to make her interesting to me is that, um, and I talked, to, I did talk about this in my dissertation, is that she's just so uh, liminal. And I think Dr. Bennett's the one that introduced me and the other students to that idea of liminality, margin marginalized, but also liminal in that, you know, she's southern. Wait, she's northern. She's American. Oh well, she was I, you know, basically Irish for a while. She. <laughs> she has all of these, and it's just this oscillation between these different, uh, she was a mother, she was a young woman giving back a flower to a suitor and apparently dated soldier, you know, she's, um, she's all of these different shimmering things. And I just find that so, so interesting. And, um, and you can see that in the poetry too. How she's vacillating between well, just the dial. I always called it dialogism. I don't know if Dr. Bennett ever used that term, but I was also into Bakhtin at the time. But just the how that she how she uses conversation in a way that you really don't see in other poets of the time. Maybe Whitman dabbles in it, but just but everyday real life people conversation, dialogue, back and forth. And it's not even, or, there's nothing or, ornamental about it, especially in the dialogues between the mom and the kids. It's just so real. It's realism before realism even happened. But anyway, yeah. Fantastic. That is a fantastic way to, to begin wrapping up our interview. Just, you've said so many things in these concluding remarks that are extremely compelling. I mean, I love the way you talk about her. You use the word shimmering yeah. um, in her well, liminality. Just, yeah. But and it, 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 but it ticks me off because <laughs> I'm like, oh, geez, there's all this work left to be done on her. And I don't have the time. You know, my time is petering out, you know, and I, and this happens, but I, this is the joy of the life of the scholar, right? You keep seeing these things are like, oh, I wish I could major in that. I wish I had time to read everything that person ever wrote. Oh, that I love it because it means I'm a curious person. I hope to always be that way. But I did want to mention how this is one interesting thing and in kind of going back over this stuff is how I've come full circle, like I told you, because I'm um, working on a project now about um, deafness in American culture, focusing on the use of ASL, how ASL has been used and continues to be used in really weird ways. ASL and um, listening devices as objects and the use of silence, primarily in film, like movies, but television, it's every, and once you start looking at this stuff, it's everywhere. But um, I'm working on this chapter about the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis because they had deaf, children on display behind bars at the World's Fair. So, you know, 
gotta check that gotta check that out so i'm back in back into the newspapers looking at these old you know clippings from 1904 and contacting the missouri historical society and doing all of these things <laughs> and then that took me back to melodrama and I'm writing about this now. Did you know that one of the very first plays ever put on in America in like, I want to say 1801 was called Death and Dumb. No. Death what? and Dumb, The Orphan Protected. And it's a play about, well, I won't go into the details, but anyway, there's ASL involved. So now I'm looking, you know, in newspapers from eight, from the turn of the century, you know, 1801, 1810, looking for mentions of these plays. So I'm like, here I am again. Wow. Yep. Well, you know, going back to something that you said, and I completely connect with about the the serendipities of research and um, the obsessive qualities of finding a topic that you love. And, you know, we've shared that in the, the Piat scholarship. Um, I, I will just share with uh, our audience that I said to Pam earlier, I have a feeling that at some point her work on deafness and deaf cultures in 19th century America is going to collide somehow with her Piat scholarship. And, um, you know, I'll just mention as we're as we're closing that um, Pam has also done work, for example, on uh, performances and uses of Shakespeare by deaf people in the 19th century. And we know that Sarah loved Shakespeare. And so, you know, as you know, like there are all these cultures are shared, right? And so um, I'm really going to look forward to hearing, uh, Pam, where these synchronicities take you as you go forward with your work in um, specifically your specific work in 19th century indefinite, although your your work extends well into the present day as well. Um, looking forward to seeing the stuff you're going to be coming up with in regards to Sarah, because it's, yeah, it's not going to come to an end anytime soon. <laughs> well, you know, I'll, I'll mention one thing in closing before we um, say goodbye and, and then ask you if you have anything you'd like to say in closing to our, our audience about our topics. Um, there is in my neighborhood um, still a uh, quote school for the deaf that goes back to the early 19th century. And one of the oddest synchronicities in my research on um, Piat, and I stumbled on this at Yale, there's no reason anyone else would notice it, but it just so happened when I was paging through all the correspondence, the family correspondence, I started noticing that um, the family lived originally in the neighborhood where I now live. <laughs> Doesn't shock me at all. So, so first of all, JJ's father, when JJ was a boy, moved to my actual neighborhood. And I don't mean city of Columbus. I mean the neighborhood where I live when the first wave of white people came and lived here after the indigenous people were moved out and transported. John Bear, JJ's father, moved here at that time. JJ was a boy and they lived right up the road um, near my grocery store. <laughs> And the other thing I noticed is that the land I live on now, and here I mean my actual street, um, slightly later, like 10 years later, was owned by JJ's sister. Right? Okay, I so mean, now, yeah, now I'm getting the chills. Now I'm getting and, the chills. And one, the only, one of the reasons I mentioned that, Pam, when we talk about these synchronicities is, so, you know, there's that deaf school up the road. Yeah. And I say, well, JJ was here visiting his sister. Sarah likely was with him. I have to find actual concrete proof of that. I know he was here visiting his sister. But, you know, there was that deaf school up the road. And so, you know, this was all part of daily life, right? And um, how, did, how did they think about the fact that the indigenous people had just been cleared out for the whites? How did they think about the deaf school just up the road? I mean, oh, super interesting questions, right? Yep. And <laughs> That reminds me at one point in my research, I found that, um, you know, there was a Morgan or Bryant, no, excuse me, Bryant Station, which was a fort over there in Kentucky. And I found out that downstream from this fort was a place called Kinchelow's Station. Nice. Right? Are, you aware, uh, are you aware of any of any ancestors in Kentucky? Do you know of any direct line to those Kinchelow's? 
my Kinshlo people come from West Virginia and okay. they actually landed in Virginia in 1695. So we've been here a while, but I, yeah, I don't know about any, I think, no, I do know there were some Kentucky Kinshlo's because I found some of them in the, in the wow. historical society. Yeah. So Great. yeah, it's just, it's all interconnected. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> So, so let me just uh, conclude by thanking you once again, Pam, for making all this time to talk with us today. It's been so great hearing your stories. I've always wondered about what it was like for you on the ground there in the first wave. I appreciate the fact that you um, took the time to talk with us and share your stories with the public. And um, uh, also I want to express my gratitude on behalf of all um, students and scholars and teachers who are working on Sarah for, for uh, really blazing the trail for the rest of us. So. Thank you very, very much. I I have to thank you because this was really, um, I was nervous about this, but I appreciate uh, the trip down memory lane. It was wonderful, wonderful. All right, thank you so much, Pam. <laughs> thank you. Discovering Sarah, America's Lost Great Writer is produced and recorded in Columbus, Ohio with the support of the Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Technology Services Studio, the Ohio State University Rare Books and Manuscripts Library, and the Ohio State University Knowledge Bank. Sound engineering by Paul Kotheimer, produced by Kayla Probion, and featuring the song, The Heresy of Paraphrase, by songwriter One Man Book. <laughs>